In a GMC survey last year, the UK surgical trainees came bottom of the list when it came to satisfaction about their training. At the same time, new national guidelines have been drawn up to improve clinical training throughout the health service. Today, Craig McElhenney, Director of the Faculty of Surgical Training at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, has released a report with a series of recommendations hoping to change surgical training to increase satisfaction, meet those guidelines, and, he believes, allowing the full surgical training process to be carried out within the strictures of the European Working Time Directive. Really, just as a bit of background, um, what prompted this? Is it sort of the, the GMC and the Patel Report and Francis and things like that? Or is it more of, you know, an awareness from, from surgeons' point of views about, you know, the way training is done? I think it was a combination of both of those things um, and some personal experience as well. Certainly with the GMC plans to recognise and approve all trainers in secondary care by 2016, it was, a, you know, it was timely that we coincided our standards of training to, um, to at the same time as the GMC standards. Yeah. But there was a wider um, aspect to that in that I thought, we know from the GMC survey that unfortunately um, surgical trainees tend to be at the bottom of the GM survey, GMC survey when it comes to satisfaction rates. And that's been the case for the past four years. So while our current surgical training programs do provide excellent surgeons at the end of the day, we're perhaps not doing it as effectively as we could. Um, and my view when it comes to the surgical training is that we should be moving towards excellence in surgical training. Mm. So between the, the GMC standards um, and a personal feeling of mine that we really, really, really need to start rewarding surgeons for being trainers to <laughs> move yeah. towards excellence, both those things came together at the same time and we produced our set of standards. Um, if we could just pick up on the sort of satisfaction of surgical trainees there. Um, yes. What were some of the problems that, that they felt were, were reducing the satisfaction in their training? It comes down to sort of fairly basic things. Um, and this is where our faculty of surgical trainers thought we could add value. You know, we don't need all surgical trainers to go and disappear and do a master's degree in medical or surgical education. That's not the level we're not fulfilling our trainees' needs that. It's simple things like they're finding it very difficult to get workplace-based assessment filled in on time or just in general. Um, and also, it comes down to things like behaviours. We know, from again, from a recent GMC survey, in fact, the trainee survey last year, that in medicine in general, about 25% of trainees have been either subjected to or aware, are aware of bullying or intimidation in the workplace and our college did its own trainee survey earlier this year which suggests that in surgery the figure is much higher and maybe near 90 percent of mm. surgical trainees are either been subjected to or aware of bullying or intimidating behavior and that that's really not acceptable in training programs no and is that um you know are these frameworks sort of set up to tackle a lot of that behavioural kind of thing? Yeah, what we, have, what we hope we have done is set a very explicit set of behavioural standards that um, we would expect a surgical trainer to do. And the most important focus we thought um, we could have was to make sure that it concentrated solely on the person at the coalface, if you like, the surgical trainer on the ground. Um, 
we wanted to make sure that the behaviours that they read in these surgical standards were things that they recognised and would be doing on a day-to-day basis in their work of training a junior trainee. Mm. And um, just before we move on, and I'll just get you to summarise those frameworks for us, what what you're actually saying. Um, When they're implemented, uh, are there carrots, sticks, support to make sure that they're followed? I think one of the big carrots will be the GMC process of recognition and approval. When we've designed our standards, we've made sure that they are based in the same framework areas as the standards designed by the Academy of Medical Educators that the GMC will use for trainer revalidation. So although we've adapted these within a surgical landscape, the headings are the same so that people will be able to use these um, to revalidate as a trainer against the GMC requirements. And I think that's going to be a big carrot. Yeah. Um, so if you could just take us through through the frameworks, and, and um, yeah, I think best that people go and actually read the document because there's an awful lot in there, but just a very top line. Framework areas are based in the academy of medical educators. So it's based in seven, seven framework areas. So ensuring safe and effective patient care through training, making sure that you establish and maintain an environment for learning within your training unit, and then using teaching to facilitate learning and then using assessment to enhance learning. It also talks about supporting and monitoring the educational progress of your trainees while also providing personal and professional development. And our last framework area is your your continuing professional development as a trainer. Uh, and we think that's important to keep in there that tr- all trainers should be aspiring, aspiring to excellence. Um, so they should be looking at their own training practice and reflecting on how they can make that better. Now, one bit um, of the report talks about collecting evidence um, on how well trainers are doing and trainees. Um, yes. Presumably, uh, you collect evidence about that already. Uh, is that right? I think you'll actually find that most trainers do not directly collect evidence on their training practice at at the moment. Most consultant surgeons are trainers just now, um, and most consultant surgeons will be collecting evidence for their standard um, appraisal and revalidation. And some of that may cover some teaching activities, but I think a lot of teaching and training activity does not get assessed, does not get recorded, and that's one thing we want to change. I think the danger of a process such as this is that it can become quite reductionist. Mm. So people could say, well, if you go on a training course of ours once every three years, we will sign you off as a trainer because you meet some of these areas. And I I think there's a danger that that approach does not increase the quality of surgical training. While we were designing these standards, we wanted to move away from that approach and make sure that we were having trainers reflect on their actual training practice every day. So when we talk about them collecting evidence, we want them to collect evidence on things like the workplace-based assessments that they do with their trainees every day, both the quality and the quantity, and also to reflect on things like how much the the learning agreements that they write reflects the curriculum stage of their trainees. Um, And we also want the trainees to give some feedback directly to the trainers so they can improve their practice. So we wanted to make sure that what we were collecting evidence on was the actual frontline training activity that they do every day in the operating theatre and in the clinic and in the emergency department. Mm. 
Um, so really, this is all about professionalizing the training element of a surgeon's job. So it's no Absolutely. longer a side thing that you do, but it's a, it's a core part of it. Yes. Um, training at the moment for by surgeons and for surgeons is really a kind of default position. Um, when you become a consultant, by default, you often become a trainer. And we know there are some excellent trainers out there, but we also know there are some trainers out there who are not excellent. And certainly what I would like in the future is that being a trainer is kind of like a badge reserved for the very best who are very good at their job. And part of the problem at the moment is that trainers don't really get any recognition or reward for their role. Um, and one, the other thing our standards will hopefully start to fulfill is by collecting this evidence, trainers can start to say to their um, employers, look, this is what I actually do on a training basis. This is the amount of time it takes me to train these people effectively, which hopefully will mean that they get increased recognition um, in their job plans and professionally for the training role that they provide. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, the NHS used to have this apprenticeship model for training. Yes. Um, and it seems like though what you're expected of... Um, you know, you expect trainees to, to and how they, they want to do it. That sort of fundamental view of how training works, almost, uh, hasn't really seemed to have changed massively. And is that what you're trying to no. do here? Yes, absolutely. Um, William Stuart Halstead um, was a very famous American surgeon, and he's accredited with starting the very first surgical training program at Johns Hopkins in 1889. If you transported William Stuart Halstead into the operating theatres of today, he wouldn't recognise any of the equipment, but he would certainly recognise the way that a lot of the trainees are trained in surgery still. A lot of trainers at the moment really do train the way they were trained, so it's still very much stuck in the apprenticeship model. And given the current pressures on surgical training, time pressures due to the European Working Time Directive, less face-to-face -face time with our trainees because of shift patterns. And also there is a financial imperative. Trusts are wanting to push through more patients on lists because of financial pressures. All these things mean that we have to move away from this apprenticeship model. All contact time with our trainees now needs to be quality training time. There's no place for a trainee standing hoping to absorb knowledge by osmosis. We have to actively be teaching and training our trainees all the time when we're in contact with them in order, to, in order to provide fully trained surgeons at the end of the time within the European Working Time Directive. Mm. Um, so do you think that apprenticeship model, or, you know, that sort of legacy of that anyway, is, is part of the, the main reason why surgery has found it really hard to get their training to, or, you know, impossible really, to get their training within the sort of 35 hours? Yes, I mean, I, I do think it's absolutely possible to train trainees within a 48-hour working week, and there are countries that, in Europe that do it in less. But what we now have to do is we need to focus on the quality of training rather than the quantity. The knee-jerk reaction to, to, to these problems with training is always, well, we need to increase the length of training time. I don't think we do. You know, we can train pilots. There's a fantastic quote from Richard Resnick, who's a well-known surgical educator from Canada, who says, you know, they can train pilots to, to fly a fully laden Airbus A380 in 250 hours. Why mm. does it take us six years to take our trainees, teach our trainees to do an appendectomy? 
and we need to really concentrate on the quality of training and I'm hoping that our standards actually explicitly state what quality of training looks like. Well, um, Mr. Michael thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolute pleasure.